Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. In prior episodes of the podcast, we've discussed in some depth the two-pillar solution to the challenges of the digital economy, so-called BEPS 2.0. In this episode, we'll focus on just one of those pillars, Pillar 2, and more specifically, the GLOBE rules, and how these rules could effectively deny U.S. multinationals the benefits of certain congressionally sanctioned tax incentives. For this discussion, I am joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Quinn Wynn and Marcus Heeland. Quinn is a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice and has very recently joined us from the Treasury Department, where she was the Deputy International Tax Counsel for Treaty Affairs. Marcus is a Managing Director in KPMG's WNT Practice. He has recently rejoined KPMG after serving as an advisor at the OECD and BEPS 2.0. Quinn and Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having us. As we've discussed in prior episodes of the podcast, the two pillars of of BEPS 2.0 proposed by the OECD aim to reallocate global taxing rights of the profits of large multinational enterprises and a set of global minimum tax rates. At a very high level, Pillar 1 would allocate a certain percentage of the excess returns of the largest, most profitable companies, so-called Amount A, to market jurisdictions, regardless of whether these multinational enterprises have a physical presence in these jurisdictions. Pillar 1 would reallocate income from a residence jurisdiction to a market jurisdiction, regardless of the tax rates imposed by either jurisdiction. Think of Pillar 1 as a means of divvying up slices of the tax pie between residents and market jurisdictions. Staying with the pie metaphor, think of Pillar 2 as divvying up uneaten slices of pie from source countries to parent jurisdictions or affiliate jurisdictions. Specifically, Pillar 2 through the so-called Global Anti-Base Erosion or GLOBE rules would impose a global minimum tax of 15% on the financial statement income of certain multinational entities, subject to certain adjustments that income and substance-based carve-outs. The global min tax would be implemented principally through two rules, the income inclusion rule, or IIR, and the under-tax payments rule, or UTPR. The IIR imposes a top-up tax on a parent entity with respect to low-taxed income of certain members of its group, referred to as constituent entities. The UTPR, on the other hand, serves as a backstop to the IAR and would generally allocate this top-up tax to the non-parent affiliates of the constituent entity by denying deductions or imputing income for constituent entities when the top-up tax is not imposed under an IAR. So returning to my pie metaphor, to the extent a source jurisdiction doesn't eat its slice of the tax pie by imposing a sufficiently high level of tax and income sourced in that jurisdiction, the slice will be offered to the jurisdiction of the parent corporation to be 
consumed by way of an IAR. And if that jurisdiction doesn't adopt an IAR, a portion of that slice will be offered to each other jurisdiction in the group that has adopted a UTPR. Now, the United States was never going to adopt the GLOBE rules, but the hope was that the changes to our guilty in the Build Back Better Act, the BBBA, particularly the switch from a blended calculation to a country-by-country country determination, and an increase to a 10.5% rate to a 15% rate, would bring guilty close enough to an IAR to achieve so-called guilty coexistence. And this guilty coexistence, it was hoped, would obviate the need for U.S. multinational groups to engage in complex Pillar 2 calculations in addition to their complex guilty calcs, since all the low-tax income of that group would be hoovered up by the U.S., and thus no other IAR or UTPR would apply. More on why that hope might be unfounded later. But regardless, guilty coexistence was never going to shield the income of the U.S. parent itself. In other words, the domestic income of a U.S. parented group, if sufficiently low tax, could be subject to the UTPR of other jurisdictions in the group, because that income just can't be picked up by any IAR. IARs, including our own guilty, only ever apply to income of foreign subsidiaries, not the parent itself. As recently highlighted by several mainstream publications, most notably the Wall Street Journal, the potential application of the GLOBE rules to income of U.S. parents would not only introduce new complexity to international taxation, but they would also potentially nullify the benefits of U.S. tax incentive regimes. But before we get there, Quinn, where do we stand with respect to the global implementation of Pillar 2? Thanks, Gary. As a refresher to where we've been, last December, the OECD Inclusive Framework released the final GLOBE model rules right before the holiday season as a gift to us all. The EU quickly followed up with a proposed EU directive to implement the GLOBE rules within the EU, and the UK announced its own public consultation to implement these rules within the UK in early January. With regards to the EU, the French currently hold the presidency and it's been a major political initiative for them to reach an EU agreement on these globe tax rules. Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Luxembourg, Malta, Poland, Slovakia, and Sweden all last week had some issues with respect to the proposed deal that France was trying to reach. And I believe that we'll see in the upcoming weeks that the French will continue to be working on balancing the views of the various EU member states to try to broker that deal because they really do want the EU to transpose into EU law the GLOBE rules. Notwithstanding that there may be a small number of member states that also want to link both the effective dates of entry into force between Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. So there'll be more work to do within the EU to sort of bridge those differences, but we'll continue to keep track and monitor those developments. When implemented, of course, into the domestic law, these GLOBE rules would ensure that multinationals that operate in these jurisdictions would pay at least a 15% tax on the income that they're earning from operating within these jurisdictions through the two provisions, the income inclusion rule and the under tax payment rule. The big thing that happened this week has been that yesterday we had another milestone on pillar two as the inclusive framework released the commentary on the globe rules 
which provides MEs and governments with detailed and comprehensive technical guidance on the operation and intended outcomes under the GLOBE rules. In keeping up with efforts to follow the timeline that was set by the October statement, the next step in the work on GLOBE will turn to the development of the so-called implementation framework, and the implementation framework will help facilitate the coordinated implementation and the administration of the GLOBE rules. It would provide agreed procedures for filing and possibly a multilateral review process, as well as consider the development of safe harbors that might be used for compliance purposes by MEs and also simplification measures for the tax administration. In regards to the development of the implementation framework, the OECD did announce that there would be public consultations held virtually at the end of April. The public consultation itself does not solicit any further comments on the policy choices that were made in the model rules or in the commentary itself. Rather, the public consultation will focus more on the mechanics for tax administration and implementation of the regime. For taxpayers that are interested in responding to the request for public consultation, the OECD website lists a series of questions where they are seeking input in particular from taxpayers, and the written comments need to be submitted by April 11th. So if you want to get your comments and your statements in, that's the date to pay attention for. Thanks, Quinn. So as I noted in the outset, the GLOBE rules only allocate top-up tax with respect to income taxed at below the 15% GLOBE rate. Currently, the U.S. has a corporate income tax of 21% and even higher once state taxes are included. Based on my rudimentary math skills, I can confidently assert that 21 is higher than 15 so it's not imminently clear that U.S. multinationals would have to worry about the GLOBE rules. But as I previewed in my introduction, taxpayers have woken up to the fact that these rules could have a significant impact on U.S. tax incentive regimes. Marcus, could you elaborate on this impact? And are there certain industries or company profiles that could be particularly impacted by this? Uh, to start, I checked your, your math, and you are correct that the U.S. has a 21% income tax rate, and that's higher than 15, and, and as you say, state taxes are included, so in the U.S., it's probably more like a 25% rate, but Congress has enacted a number of tax credits and deductions associated with various activities that it wants to incentivize, such as FIDI deductions, R&D credits, low-income housing credits and renewable energy credits, for example, these tax incentives reduce a U.S. company's effective tax rate. And so if taking into account these incentives, the overall effective tax rate in the U.S. is below the pillar to 15% minimum rate, then the impact of that is that foreign affiliates of the U.S. company would be required to make up the difference by making top-up tax payments under the under-tax payment rule to their home foreign jurisdictions. As a result, foreign governments, not the U.S. companies making the U.S. investments, would enjoy the tax benefits offered by the U.S. Congress. This would likely have the unintended result, I would think, of curtailing investment in domestic activities or projects that Congress seeks to encourage. And you had asked who is most impacted Notably, this is a general issue that can arise for really any company in any industry. 
From what I have seen, though, the most common ingredients are a large FIDI deduction combined with a large R&D credit. And with deferred tax liabilities capped at 15%, even though the tax rate in the U.S. is much higher than that, as, as we've discussed, there is no ability for deferred taxes to bring the tax rate on the income back over that 15% hump. If I was to point to a certain industry that is particularly impacted, it would probably be large banking institutions that are utilizing material amounts of low-income housing credits and sometimes energy credits, which can bring the ETR in the U.S. well below that 15% bogey. Although there may be technical interpretations that could help ameliorate this result, Finally, it is important to note that beyond the common preferences that we have been discussing here and were the subject of that Wall Street Journal article that you mentioned, such as FIDI and R&D and low-income housing, there are also all sorts of more niche sport incentives in the U.S. tax code, including some that apply to smaller multinationals. And so some of these companies have also been trying to get Treasury's attention to clarify how the Pillar 2 rules apply in these more narrow contexts to avoid Pillar 2 effectively overriding those incentives as well. So the problem identified here, the application of the UTPR to financial statement income of the U.S. parent, exists if any country in a U.S. multinational group adopts a UTPR, and regardless of whether or not Congress passes the BBBA or some version of it. I assume, though, that there are many taxpayers that are currently talking to their representatives in Congress or the Office of Tax Policy at Treasury right now. Quinn, is there anything that Congress or Treasury can do about this issue? One of the tools available to Congress in addressing the problems is to change the way in which they provide certain incentives to taxpayers. So, for example, instead of providing a research and development credit, they could try to make the credit refundable, refundable in a way that would make it more acceptable under the GLOBE provisions. So, for example, a non-refundable credit, which is a credit where the refund is due after four years, is a repayment of tax under the GLOBE rules. And what you would need to do when you're computing your GLOBE ETR is you'd have to actually reduce the covered entities taxes in the numerator. But a qualified refundable credit, which is a credit that may be paid or refunded within four years, is treated slightly differently under the GLOBE ETR computation. When you're dealing with a qualified refundable tax credit, it's actually treated as income under the GLOBE. So what you would do in this case is that for your numerator, the covered taxes that are paid by the entity, you don't have to reduce the covered tax in the numerator. What you would do instead is increase the GLOBE income of the constituent entity so that it might be added back to the denominator. Um, and in this way, in terms of computing the ETR, it becomes a little more favorable for taxpayers rather than having the R&E credit just simply reduce your covered tax in the numerator. So other things that Congress can do, of course, rather than trying to provide the refundable credits is essentially make a direct payment to taxpayers in the same amount that they were trying to incentivize. In terms of things that Treasury could do, um, at this point, it may be very difficult for Treasury to reconsider or renegotiate certain aspects of the GLOBE rule. So as we've said before, the final GLOBE rules themselves were released in December 
And those rules included definitions for what is a refundable or non-refundable credit. And the commentary that was released just yesterday, I think many taxpayers prior to the release of this commentary had been hoping that their efforts in reaching out to Treasury to talk about these issues and how certain credits might impact U.S. multinational ETR computations were hopeful that the commentary itself might provide some flexibility or wiggle room with respect to the interpretation. But having released the commentary yesterday, it does not appear at the outset that there is any change or difference in outcome. And so I'm not sure that lobbying or speaking out to Treasury about these issues may yield very productive or tangible results, just in light of the fact that the GLOBE rules kind of are what they are, and the model commentary don't seem to help. And this may just be something that is left to Congress to deal with as they think through whether the U.S. will implement aspects of these rules and how they might change our internal revenue code to reflect some of the changes that might be more favorable for a U.S. M&E in computing their effective tax rate here in the U.S. So we talked a couple episodes back about the final foreign tax credit regulations and specifically the changes to the cost recovery requirement and the introduction of the attribution requirement, formerly known in the proposed regs as the jurisdictional nexus requirement. How would you analyze a top-up tax paid by an affiliate under a UTPR under these new regs? That's an interesting question. As you know, countries have different options on how they might make an adjustment in order to collect the amount of the undertax payment. And one of the things I think that we would want to note is that to the extent a jurisdiction decides that they're going to make an adjustment by disallowing certain deductions that they provide to their residents, then I think the issues that we can see with respect to the final FTC regulations would certainly be issues around cost recovery in the sense that you now have a jurisdiction disallowing deductions that would have otherwise been provided to the resident entity. And it seems like that could be an issue of the cost recovery element of the regulations. Some may argue that perhaps it's not significant in light of all the other costs that most taxpayers are subject to. But again, I think it would raise an issue. And obviously, the other issues that it might raise is with respect to the arm's length transfer pricing principles in these jurisdictions, especially if the other option were imposed, which is if the jurisdiction rather than doing a deduction disallowance rule, were to deem income to the resident entity in the amount of the undertaxed payment, then the issues there certainly would be arm's length pricing. You know, what is the deemed income? There are issues about extraterritorial base in the sense that they're just deeming an amount of income to resident entities and taxing it. There would also be the same cost recovery issues since the deemed income would not be purportedly allowed any type of deduction within the resident jurisdiction. And so I think we find that if you're paying UTPR tax in the resident jurisdiction, it may not be a good income tax. And furthermore, if they're implementing and collecting the under tax payment amount as a part of or an additional element of income for the general resident-based corporate income tax, I think that there's an issue about whether it calls into question the general 
corporate income tax in that jurisdiction since you're evaluating the foreign tax as it applies to all taxpayers and not just taxpayers that actually are subject to the UTPR. The silver lining in all of this is that the government at least has acknowledged in the preamble to these regulations that if Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 are implemented, that they would need and recognize the need to come back and revisit these regulations. And so I think the hope certainly would be that if the UTPR tax is not credible under the existing regulation, that there would be capacity in the future as countries adopt these rules to ensure that there would be a credit that would be given that would be appropriate. Thanks, Quinn. Let's talk about another way that the GLOBE rules could impact U.S. multinationals. We talked earlier about guilty coexistence. That is, whether the GLOBE rules will treat guilty as a qualifying IIR. As I mentioned earlier, the hope many U.S. multinationals have had is that if guilty is a qualifying IAR, they wouldn't have to concern themselves with the GLOBE rules with respect to their CFCs because all their CFCs income would be subject to guilty. There are a few variables in this discussion which I want to discuss in turn. First, Quinn, if no changes are made to guilty through the BBBA or otherwise, is guilty a qualifying IAR and who makes this determination? The OECD or does each country individually determine that? And what if changes envisioned by the BBBA are made? Certainly, I think the hope would have been that this type of decision with respect to guilty coexistence would be made at the inclusive framework level, meaning that the U.S. would have been able to convince the jurisdictions that guilty has satisfied enough of the elements that it should be treated as a coexisting regime under the GLOBE rules. That certainly hasn't happened yet. And the October statement that was released last year had noted that Pillar 2 now applies a min tax rate on a jurisdictional basis. And it is in that context that consideration by the inclusive framework would be given to the conditions under which guilty would coexist with the GLOBE rules, all again with a view to ensuring that there's a level playing field It may be that in your scenario, if guilty is not reformed under BBB, that other countries would find it very difficult to agree that guilty could coexist with the GLOBE rules in its current form. It's at a lower rate and there's worldwide blending. And those are going to be problematic elements, I think, for many jurisdictions to swallowing a rule that would allow guilty to coexist. So the timing of when these decisions would be made, sort of not clear. They had indicated that last year when they released the plan, that commentary would be coming out. Commentary did come out, but at the same time, guilty coexistence would be discussed and perhaps news of it would have been provided by now. But the commentary also doesn't provide any new light on guilty coexistence. And that may have been because BBBA did not pass last December and therefore the hopes of guilty being coexisted are perhaps diminishing because, it, again, I, I note that it seems difficult or not clear if the consensus could be reached. In the absence of consensus being reached, I think jurisdictions may be left on their own to decide whether or not they would view guilty to be a compliant regime or not. We have seen that the EU, in their proposed directive, is not treating guilty as a compliant regime. 
So I think it's out there and it's not clear, I guess, how all of these overlapping rules will work at the end of the day if other countries are implementing the globe rules and there is a divergence of views among those jurisdictions as to how guilty should or should not be treated. So Marcus, let's say that guilty is not a qualifying IIR. How are taxes paid by the U.S. parent with respect to its CFC income taken into account for purposes of applying an intermediate jurisdiction's IAR or an affiliate jurisdiction's UTPR? In the paradigm where guilty stays as it is, and therefore, as you say, guilty would be not a qualifying income inclusion rule, I would expect that guilty would be treated as a CFC tax regime, which just means that any residual guilty taxes that are paid in the U.S. would be pushed down to the entities and jurisdictions that earn the underlying income. I'm relatively confident in saying that because if you read the definition of a CFC tax regime that is provided in the Pillar 2 model rules, it is very easy to find current guilty in that definition. So assuming current guilty is in fact treated as a CFC tax regime, you then get to the question of, well, which jurisdiction do you push those guilty taxes down to? In other words, there needs to be some allocation factor to allocate the residual guilty taxes paid in the U.S. to jurisdiction X versus Y versus Z. Presumably, these rules would be agreed as part of the OECD implementation framework to ensure that every country is following the same approach. Finally, there is the question of whether the resulting IIR taxes that are paid by that intermediate foreign parent entity after taking into account the pushdown of guilty taxes would be creditable in the U.S., And it won't surprise you, Gary, that this is more complicated than it may appear. In particular, there is a circularity issue at play here. And to illustrate this, assume that the U.S. parent owns an intermediate U.K. company, which then owns a Cayman Islands subsidiary. And assume that there's 10.5 of guilty taxes paid on that 100 of Cayman income. And so those taxes would be taken into account by the U.K.'s income inclusion rule such that the UK intermediate parent would be charged 4.5 of income inclusion rule tax in order to get to 15 of total tax on the 100 of Cayman income. But if the US gives a credit for the four and a half of tax paid to the UK, then the US arguably didn't collect 10 and a half of guilty tax, it only collected six. And so the UK would then need to collect nine to get back to a total of 15 of of total pillar two tax on the 100 of Cayman income and around you go. So to summarize, if guilty stays as it is, I expect it to be treated as a CFC tax regime and therefore guilty taxes to be pushed down. But as I described, there's still quite a bit to sort out here in terms of how that would actually work in practice. The situation that I just described, that is where the intermediate parent jurisdiction steps in to collect the top of tax of a lower tier, low tax subsidiary through the income inclusion rule, that may in the end be just a hypothetical. The much more likely outcome, in my view, is that the low tax jurisdiction is going to step in and collect the top of tax itself. This is entirely logical because if the top of tax is going to be paid to a parent jurisdiction through the income inclusion rule or some other jurisdiction through the under tax payment rule, why wouldn't the local jurisdiction take action to collect the top of tax itself? And in fact, we don't have to speculate about that because several investment hub jurisdictions, including Singapore, Hong Kong, 
the UAE and others have already made public indications that they are exploring implementing domestic top-up tax systems. On first blush, these domestic top-up taxes are kind of offensive because they look like a soak-up tax in the colloquial sense. But importantly, domestic top-up tax regimes have been sanctioned by the OECD, both in the model rules and the commentary. Notably, the same question arises with these taxes. That is, are they creditable in the United States? It's not obvious to me why they wouldn't be, but to the extent guilty taxes are pushed down and taken into account in determining what that domestic top-up tax amount is, it seems to me that the same circularity question arises as what I described earlier in the context of the income inclusion rule. So that's messy. Okay, so what if guilty is deemed a qualifying IIR? Is this the nirvana everyone has envisioned? Perhaps from the OECD standpoint, it would be nirvana, but it is much more nuanced from a U.S. multinational standpoint. For a U.S. company looking at this and saying, am I better off if guilty is reformed to align with pillar two, or would I prefer that guilty stays as it is and instead be subject to the pillar two rules on CFC income? I think there are two different lenses to examine that question. The first is total taxes paid and related to that, which countries received any top-up tax payments. And then the second lens is the administration and compliance. So starting with total taxes paid, it is important to begin with the observation that while reformed guilty in Build Back Better is conceptually aligned with Pillar 2, it is significantly less business friendly than Pillar 2. Most obviously, reformed guilty would have a substantially less generous substance carve out. As a result, and again, looking at this strictly from a total taxes paid standpoint, some U.S. companies may prefer that guilty stays as it is because the total amount of pillar two top up tax on CFC income may be less than the amount that would otherwise be due under reformed guilty and build back better. Of course, there's a number of key assumptions that go into that, not least whether the various types of pillar two taxes would be creditable in the U.S. And I know a lot of U.S. companies are going through and doing that math. Now, you could look at that and say, well, even if I pay slightly more tax under reformed guilty, I would at least rather pay the tax to the U.S. government rather than foreign governments under Pillar 2. But that's actually an illusion because regardless of whether the U.S. implements reformed guilty or not, it is the low tax jurisdictions that are first in line to collect the top of tax under those qualified domestic top of taxes that I discussed earlier. Moving to the second lens, the compliance administration, I think the assumption has been that if guilty is a qualifying income inclusion rule, then the U.S. ultimate parent entity of the group would file a form in every country it operated in to essentially signal to local jurisdictions that one, guilty is a qualifying income inclusion rule, and two, the income that's earned in that jurisdiction is picked up by guilty. And so the inquiry is over at that point, and there's no need for the group to do pillar two math to prove that the effect of guilty is a pillar two ETR above 15%. Unfortunately, the pillar two model rules on administration don't say that. Even if we assume that Treasury is able to secure administrative relief in that way in future OECD guidance, I don't think it has much value because of here too, these qualified domestic top-up tax regimes require pillar two math. And therefore, assuming most jurisdictions implement these domestic top-up regimes, which seems very likely, U.S. multinationals will have to do pillar two calculations in all of these jurisdictions, regardless of whether guilty is reformed or not. 
And so looking at this all together, some U.S. companies may conclude that it isn't necessarily a terrible outcome if the U.S. does nothing, because first, that may actually be a better answer from a total taxes paid standpoint. But again, that needs to be looked at on a company by company basis and modeled. And second, any top of taxes that are due are going to the local jurisdiction anyway under these domestic top of tax regimes. And third, the administration and compliance requirements are basically neutral between both of those uh, paradigms. So as you can see, Gary, while guilty being treated as a qualifying IR would clearly be nirvana from the OECD standpoint, I think it is a lot more nuanced than that from a U.S. company standpoint. Thanks, Marcus. And Quinn, I'll end with you. Anything you're looking forward to seeing over the coming weeks and months? Any developments that may be particularly important to keep an eye on? Uh, Other than the spring weather in Southern California to look forward to, I think obviously many of us and many taxpayers will be eagerly reading through the released commentary from yesterday and hoping for some interesting nuggets there that we can share on a future podcast. But I think one, reading through and paying attention to the commentary, and as Marcus indicated, focusing especially on some of the administrative and compliance rules that are included in those chapters. And one of the things that I think taxpayers should be paying attention to also is the potential for the public consultation, which the OECD has promised would happen sometime this spring, on the implementation of the GLOBE rules, and in particular, focusing on those administrative and compliance aspects of the regime. So, you know, other than continuing to pay attention to more public consultations on the GLOBE and paying attention to how the rest of the world is doing and and making progress on implementing these rules, certainly the other area that we'll all be paying attention to is what's happening here on the home front in terms of potential tax legislation being eventually enacted that would help reform guilty, among other things. Thank you, Quinn, and thank you, Marcus, for joining me today and sharing your valuable insights on the impact of GLOBE on U.S. companies. To our listeners, as always, we'll be here to update you on any future developments related to BEPS 2.0, so please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these and other developments impacting U.S. international tax. And please leave us your reviews on our podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast. Your five-star reviews are always appreciated. Until our next episode, take care.